And so when Paul introduces himself, the whole time is spent on Jesus because Jesus is the thing that revolutionized and changed his life. Paul could have had a lot to say about himself. He was once... little information about the book of Romans. It was written, written a little bit later in Paul's ministry. So the Apostle Paul, we're going to talk about him a little bit today, wrote this book. Okay, he wrote it somewhere between 57 and 60 AD. So around 27 years, 25 to 27 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. All right, so that's some background in the history of what's happening. Now, that happens to be about four to seven years before things get really bad in Rome. Now, the Roman Empire hasn't come down on the Christians yet, but the Jewish synagogues and the leaders have. Okay, so the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are trying to stop the church from existing. And in about four years, four to seven years from Paul writing this book, the Roman Empire is going to be assisting them in getting rid of Christianity. And so they're about to experience persecution from multiple sides. But at this moment, it's just the Jewish leaders trying to squash the church and trying to kick people out of synagogues and out of Jewish life. In the middle of this is the Apostle Paul. And he writes this book. This book to a church in Rome. What you'll find out in this book is that Paul had yet to visit Rome. And that might not sound too crazy to you, but what we learn in the New Testament is that a lot of the churches got started by Paul. But the church in Rome exists without Paul ever visiting there. So how did the church in Rome start? We don't really know. The best insight that we have is on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, is that there were actually some Jews and proselytes from the city of Rome who got converted that day on Pentecost after the resurrection. It's likely that they took that message with them to Rome. And Paul, you will find out, has been desiring to go to Rome and to help this church flourish and grow and understand. And this desire for the Church of Rome, to become a great church, to understand doctrine in its entirety, in this place he hasn't been to yet, results in this letter being the Magna Carta of Christianity. This is Paul's doctrinal vision. This is the New Testament understanding of grace. This is, if you want to know what we believe as Christians, the book of Romans tells you. And so that's what we're going to be doing from this point forward. For a while, we're going to be in this book, really understanding what we believe and why we believe it. The book of Romans has changed the lives of many throughout history. It has resulted in huge movements in the church from history past. To give you an example, one person whose life was changed by the book of Romans is Martin Luther. The book of Romans is sort of the thing that compelled and started the Protestant Reformation. 
because it changed Martin Luther's understanding so radically of who Jesus was and what he offers. Because someone who was so concerned and riddled with their sin and they didn't understand how to take care of it, Martin Luther left a lucrative practice of law and became a monk. And he would beat himself and chastise himself because he was so beaten up inside about his sin and his desire to connect with God and to connect with the God who saves. But it wasn't until he read the book of Romans that he understood grace, that it wasn't about him beating himself up or becoming perfect so that God would love him. It was about surrendering his life to Jesus. And Martin Luther actually wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. And just a couple hundred years later, John Wesley read that commentary on the book of Romans, and it radically changed his life. And then another Reformation movement happened because of John and Charles Wesley. In more recent time, I have recently found out that Pastor Chuck Smith, who was a part of the Jesus movement in the late 60s and early 70s, was struggling at the church where he was pastoring. He didn't see any growth, and so he decided one day he was going to stop trying to do funky, topical series and just start preaching the Word of God and see what happens. And so he started in the book, in the Gospel of John, and people started to get interested in what the Bible had to say. And they started to grow. And then from the Gospel of John, they went to the book of Romans, and that is when his church exploded because everything changed when they started to understand real doctrine from the book of Romans. Now, I just learned that, and interestingly, us as a church started out teaching the Gospel of John. And our next book series is Romans. So I'm, I would love for God to repeat history and to grow us spiritually and to increase our attendance, not because people need to be in the seats, but because people need to hear the gospel and the truth. And I would love to see people get saved as we go through this book that is truth. Now, this book opens up with an introduction. Paul is introducing himself to the church in Rome. Now, he does this in all of his letters, but in particular to the church of Rome, because he's never been there yet, and he desires to go. And so he starts out by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the first two verses are just Paul introducing himself. And how does he introduce himself? As a servant of Jesus, as an apostle, one who is committed to the gospel. That's how he introduces himself. That's how he tells the Church of Rome who he is. That's how he identifies. Now, in our society, when people ask you who you are, we often go to our careers. Now, it's easy for me. I'm a pastor. So I get a free pass because my life is about the church. It's about Jesus. But I remember working in other jobs, working in a machine shop or working as a, as a manager, a produce manager in retail or working as a HR and small business consultant. 
And I would tell people that that's what I did, and that's how they saw me. They saw me as my job. But that's not who I am. I'm a servant of Christ. That's who I at least hope would be recognized as in my life. So Paul is telling them who he is. Let's get a little bit bigger of an understanding of who Paul is. Who is Paul? Well, there's one description of Paul. It's not from Scripture. It's from an apocryphal book. So we don't know if it's true or if it's made up or slander, but this is the only physical description of Saul that we're aware of from antiquity. This is what it says he looked like. Now, remember, the Apostle Paul was once the the highly respected Pharisee in the Jewish community who sat on the Sanhedrin. He then became the biggest reason that the church exists because of his evangelistic effort, because of his passion and zeal for Jesus when he converted to Christianity. And he also wrote the most eloquent understanding of what we believe. Even Peter writes in his writings that some of what Paul writes is confusing because Paul was such a genius. This is the physical description of that man. Are you ready? A man, so far, shocker. Small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, well-built with eyebrows meeting. So unibrow. Rather long-nosed and crooked, full of grace. For sometimes he seemed like a man, and sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. So, a short, bald, monobrowed, bow-legged man. That's who we're talking about. And he had the greatest influence in the first century after Jesus. That's who we're talking about. Because the identity isn't on his outward appearance or what he looks like. His identity is found in the gospel. And he wrote the most eloquent piece of understanding of what the gospel means in this book. So let's discover it. Now he said that he's committed to the gospel. And in verse 2 he said that God promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Well, what does this mean? Well, let's, uh, let's get a look. All right, so does the gospel actually show up in Scripture before Paul writes it or before the four gospels are shown? Well, let's find out. Here are some examples. Isaiah chapter 52 tells us that the Messiah will sprinkle many nations, and a sprinkle is related to a blood sacrifice. So that sounds like Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, it states in verse 5 that talking about the Messiah that would come, that he was wounded for our transgression or sin, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Well, Jesus was beaten and bruised and whipped with stripes all across his body. And he even said that the reason that he's doing it is to bear the sin of us. That sounds like it was told a long time ago, about 700 years before the fact. In verse 9, it says that he would, the Messiah, that they're predicting in the future, would die with the wicked but be buried with the rich. Well, Jesus was crucified on a cross between two criminals but was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a wealthy man. 
So that came true exactly. In verse 11, it said he would justify many and bear their iniquities. In verse 12, it says he would bear the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. And that's just one book of the Bible, one chapter. In Psalm 22, we actually get a full description of what the crucifixion would look like. A thousand years before the crucifixion happened, and a few hundred years before crucifixion even existed on the planet, this description was given in Psalm 22. That his hands and feet would be pierced. That his bones would be stretched out and out of joint. That he would be surrounded by Gentiles. They're called dogs in Psalm 22. But that they would cast lots for his garments. Well, Jesus' hands and feet were pierced on the cross. And his bones were stretched out from gravity, pulling him down and opening up his lung cavity so that he couldn't breathe in unless he lifted himself up on the nails that were pinching pressure points. And while that was happening, Roman soldiers were around him casting lots for his garments. So a thousand years before that, those little details were mentioned. In Genesis 22, it tells us that Abraham was to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And when he takes him up to the mountain, Instead, a ram is placed there that Abraham sacrifices instead. But on the way up the mountain, Isaac looks at him and says, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide one. And then there's a ram up there, not a lamb. So when they sacrifice the ram, Abraham names that place, God will provide. Meaning he's still looking for the lamb to be sacrificed on that spot. That spot happens to be known as Calvary or Golgotha, the exact same place that Jesus was crucified and John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. Abraham predicted that the Lamb would come. So yes, Paul is a preacher of the gospel and the gospel existed in the Old Testament. And God has been telling us that story for a long time. Let's pick up in verse 3. So verse 3 says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith and among all the nations for his name, among whom you are called of Jesus Christ. And so it mentions specifically that he needs to be a son of David. Well, interestingly, also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David that the Messiah would come from his bloodline. So yes, the Old Testament tells us the story of the gospel. Now in verse 8, it says, first, Paul's finally moving on from his introduction to telling them what, he needs to hear, what they need to hear. Now that is an interesting that Paul spends one and a half verses talking about himself for his introduction. The rest of his introduction has to do with Jesus and who he is as the Messiah. How often do we spend time introducing others to ourselves and we're so focused on who we are and what we do rather than on what saved us? Jesus. And so when Paul introduces himself, the whole time is spent on Jesus because Jesus is the thing that revolutionized and changed his life. 
Paul could have had a lot to say about himself. He was once a member of the Sanhedrin, a respected Jew. He was a student of the highly praised Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, a highly praised rabbi, said that the best, the, the hardest part about having Paul as a student was trying to find more books for him to read. That's how Paul was talked about. But Paul doesn't introduce himself that way. Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus. Here's a bunch of stuff about Jesus you need to know. Because the focus isn't on him. It's about the Lord. It's about the God who saved him. And so as he starts digging in to telling them what they need to hear after his introduction, just note that how Paul sees himself is him striving for Jesus. He doesn't see all the accolades that belong to him. He just sees Jesus. And so that's who Paul is. The question for us is, who are we? Who are you? Who am I? Does my identity rest wholly in Jesus? Because it looks like Paul's did. First, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. Do you imagine if that was said about us? That people were thanking Jesus for our faith because our faith is clear to the rest of the world? That's the kind of church I'd like to be. It says, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I pray now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you, that I may impart you to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among other Gentiles. So Paul's desire is to meet up with the church in Rome because he's heard about their faith. Now what he wants from that meeting is to be encouraged by them and to encourage them. And then here comes the main point of his desire, to have a harvest. He wants to see those who are lost found. He wants to see those who haven't heard the gospel a chance to hear it, and he looks for the opportunity to do it because his identity has nothing to do with his comfort. His identity is found in the gospel of Jesus, and he can't wait to spread it. And so he looks out at the world. There's a story about D.L. Moody. He was doing a conference in, uh, in Chicago. That's where Dwight Moody was from. And his church was thriving. People were getting saved left and right. And there were a couple of pastors who were interested to understand what was different about D.L. Moody's ministry than theirs. And so they visited him. They visited Dwight L. Moody at his hotel room. And they asked him, what's the difference? Why are so many people getting saved from your ministry? What are we missing? And Dwight tells them, D.L. Moody says, look out the window and tell me what you see. And so the pastors look out the window and they talk about the, the landscape. They talk about the restaurants and the streets. And that's what they talk about. That's what they see outside the window. And they look back and Dwight 
L. Moody is crying. And they said, why are you crying? And he walks up to the window and he says, because what I see are a bunch of people who haven't heard the gospel. And because of that, they're not headed for heaven. That's the difference. He wasn't concerned with himself. He wasn't concerned with how many people were getting saved because of him. He was just concerned with the gospel being spread because it changed his life so much. He needed others to know about it. His identity was found in Jesus, like Paul's. And so what does Paul say? He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And what he says is, the gospel is meant for everyone. If you're Greek, if you're not. If you're a Jew, if you're not. If you're smart, if you're not. If you're wise, if you're not. It doesn't matter. The gospel is meant for you, and I can't wait to go to the center of the world to preach it, because the gospel is meant for everyone. And that's how Paul saw it, and he couldn't wait to preach it. And this is what he says about the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so what does Paul say here? He starts out by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Of course he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's his whole identity. He finds himself in Christ. He doesn't try to add Jesus to his life. Jesus is the center of everything in his life. And so he's not ashamed of it. He can't wait to proclaim it. And he doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor, a Jew, a Gentile, smart, or not so much. He knows that the gospel is meant for you, regardless of your circumstance or your social status. The gospel is meant to be preached to you. And Paul can't wait to do it. And he is unashamed. Pastor Brian, who was here a couple of weeks ago, said something that stuck with me. I listened to his, his sermon when I was gone. He said, anyone that's heard the gospel and is changed by it ought to be excited about it and to share it with others. If you are not excited to share it with others, examine your heart. Now, that's not an exact quote, but that's what he basically said. Has the gospel changed you enough that it's all-consuming? That you know that other people need to hear it because it is the only way to be saved. There's nothing more important than the gospel. Paul is not ashamed of it. He says that it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Can you think of anything more important? The thing that brings salvation to those who believe it, who repent and believe the gospel. And he says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. 
Now, this is interesting because the letter that we have to the church in Rome comes from Paul. That might not be what you would expect based on church history. You would think maybe it comes from Peter because the Roman Catholic Church has highlighted Peter as the first pope, and that's what they think. Now, the truth of the matter is, Paul makes a statement here that's really important. The gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Peter led the charge for the church to preach the gospel to the Jews. But he wasn't the leader of the church. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, you find that they always submit to whatever James says. James actually becomes the first major leader of the disciples in the church. That's what you see in the book of Acts. But Jesus did promise Peter that the church would be built on him. And interestingly, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, you see that Peter was the first one to preach a sermon to the Jews. And 3,000 people were added to the church that day because of Peter's sermon that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, you actually see Peter be the first one to baptize a Gentile. He baptizes Cornelius as he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the door was open to the Gentiles through Peter. But Paul was the, the apostle that God had set apart to reach the Gentiles. And so while it started with Peter, Paul is the one who takes over. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And the world was taken by storm because of this man who once tried to kill Christians. The early part of what we see with Paul, we see Paul the first time in Acts chapter 7, and he's holding the coats of those who are stoning one of the first deacons. He's gloating and happy that the people are throwing rocks at Stephen and a Christian is dying. And then he goes and asks for permission from the government and from the Jewish leaders to travel around the Roman Empire to lock Christians up in jail to prevent the spread of Christianity. But on that trip, Paul meets the resurrected Jesus and is changed forever. And he goes from the guy who was trying to stop Christianity from ever making it anywhere to the reason it spread throughout the whole world. He went from a guy who was well-respected and a member of the Sanhedrin, who lived a comfortable life, a well-respected life, a wealthy life, and he gave all that up because of the resurrection of Jesus. And when he met the resurrected Jesus, he became a Christian. And he was ostracized by the Jews. He ended up on his missionary journeys, likely contracting malaria and having issues with himself. He ended up being up, so beaten up that by the end, you'll see in the book of Romans as we get to it, that he prayed for God to take a thorn from his flesh. We don't know what it is. But something was preventing him or hurting him and stopping him. And Paul is praying for healing from God. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. This guy who had everything, left it all for Jesus. And he ends up broken and beaten. He leaves a life of luxury and comfort and wealth for the gospel. And when God responds, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul recognizes that that's the truth. Because everything that he had, he had everything the world could offer. Respect, wealth, comfort. He was an elite in the society. 
And he went to being a beaten man who was shipwrecked, had malaria, beaten to a point where he's begging God to heal him. A man who has healed others, by the way, can't be healed by God. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul's response is, God's grace is better than everything I ever had before. Because the gospel is that important. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And we're going to end tonight on verse 18. Now, the, the normal place to end here would be on verse 17, if you've listened to other sermons in this area. But I like to point this out. We'll start here next week, but in verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, why would I want to end there? Why would I want to end on a sentence that starts with the wrath of God after such a happy sermon? Because the truth is, we like to forget about the wrath of God. But the wrath of God has to exist. If, if there is no wrath, God is not just. Evil has to be punished. If evil isn't punished, what on earth are we being saved from? The cross saves us from the wrath of God. If you want to know how intense the wrath of God is, God's wrath was satisfied by the cross. The wrath that mankind deserved was satisfied by the cross. That is what you are being saved from, the wrath of God. God must punish wickedness. He must punish sin and evil if he is just. And so in order for us to be free and to be able to go before God clean, someone had to pay the debt that we owe God. And, and it had to be paid in God's wrath. And so that was the death of Jesus. Recognize what you're saved from. God's wrath poured out on the cross. And so when you stand before God, you are sinful. You haven't lived a perfect life. So if you're not perfect, how can you enter a perfect place? Because as soon as you enter it, you ruin it. So how can you be perfect before God's face? Only if that wrath and that justice has been poured out. Only if someone has paid that debt for you. And so God's wrath was poured out on the cross. And so while salvation is a free gift for us, understand that the payment was God's wrath poured out in, in a tremendous fashion. The cross. That's why everything hinges on the cross. It is the thing that saves. It's what gives us eternal life because our debt is paid for there on Calvary, the same place that Abraham brought Isaac. Calvary. If there was no wrath, we wouldn't have been saved from anything. But that is what we are saved from. And so the cross is the substitution for God's wrath on your sin if you repent and believe. And if you recognize what you're saved from and you rest your heart and put your identity in Jesus, don't try to add Jesus to your life. 
It doesn't work that way. God is more important than that. If your identity rests in Christ, if everything stems from God because you repent and believe, then you will be saved. And if you do that, then you can live a life like Paul, who doesn't introduce himself with all of the wonderful accolades of his life, being a student of Gamaliel, a rich, wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. Instead, your identity rests in the one who saved you, and you get to be unashamed of the gospel. And we want to be a church that is unashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for this message in Romans. Thank you for using your spirit to give Paul these words to write. Thank you for changing the world through the cross. Help us to recognize it, to recognize what we are saved from. Thank you that you were willing to pour out your wrath on your son instead of us so that we could be saved and given over to eternal life. Thank you for grace. Help us to accept it and live unashamed in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.